This episode is dedicated to my mother. The thing is, with everything that's been going on lately, I almost forgot her birthday. I know, I'm a terrible son, and I'm still feeling sheepish about it. So, Mom, I really am sorry. And as part of your birthday present, I got you this overly complicated episode on the heptarchy. Love you. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 150, King Offa, The Turnover. Hey, you really should go check out the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. We've got the Heptarchy family tree, and now we've got a cool interactive map of the battles that took place in the early Middle Ages of Britain. Member Cameron has been coding it up so that you can see where many of these battles took place and get a short summary of what happened. It really is awesome. So seriously, go check it out. Now today's episode is going to go all over the place. We have the kings of Kent, Wessex, East Anglia, Northumbria, and of course Mercia all involved. So this is a big one, but King Offa will continue to be our main character. To start with, what's going on in the world? Last week I mentioned in passing King Chenewulf had just taken the throne of Wessex from about 757 and began retaking the West Saxon lands from Mercia. Mercia couldn't really do much about it because they were embroiled in civil war, and that left Wessex in a very strong position. In East Anglia, King Beona began ruling at about 758, roughly at around the same point that the Mercian civil war ended and Offa took the throne. It seems that King Beona might have been in a better position than Offa to begin with. Economically, East Anglia was doing great. As you might recall from the last episode, Ipswich, which is in East Anglia, was becoming a major trading center. We spoke about how this development came about in earlier episodes, so if you would like a refresher, check out the Retail Therapy episode. It's episode 123. Now, with the increase in trade and the shifting economy in East Anglia, coinage became much more necessary. As we've discussed before, a moneyed economy is basically a way to make trade easier and simpler. Without money, imagine how hard it would be to purchase the clothing that you want. I mean, if you only have grain to trade, and the tailor doesn't want the grain, you'd have to find someone who would want it, who also happens to have something to trade that the tailor wants as well. That's a huge pain, but with money, you can trade based upon the abstract value of the coins. That makes everything much easier and quicker, which in turn would make trading towns much more desirable to merchants. Because of this, King Beona saw utility in developing his own money, and ordered coins to be struck early in his reign. And coins have multiple benefits for a king beyond just facilitating trade. First, it also likely enhanced the personal wealth of King Beona. Sure, it made taxation easier, but that's not what I'm talking about. The advantage that kings had in striking their own coins is that they could retain a portion of the bullion used in making the money. Bullion is the bulk silver or gold that was used for the coins. So these kings were able to take a cut of the gold or the silver right off the top before the coins were even made. That would enhance the king's wealth, and what is true today was also true over 1,200 years ago. Wealth provides a significant amount of power. The other major effect these coins had is that they were likely a signal of East Anglia's independence. And I wonder what Offa thought about that. To the north of Mercia, in Northumbria, 
things were still being remarkably Northumbrian. Remember King Chowulf? He was the king who was forced into monkhood and then was rescued, but then voluntarily went back to the monastery anyway. Well, the king who took over from him was King Aidbert of Northumbria, the brother of Archbishop Egbert of York. He was actually a remarkably popular king, and it looks like Northumbria had a brief stint of economic prosperity under his rule. He was even minting his own coins. So things under Aidbert of Northumbria were pretty damn amazing, and as a bonus, their rival, Mercia, was racked with internal issues. Things really were looking up for Northumbria. But, right at about the time that Mercia's civil war ended, so in about 758, good King Aidbert stepped down and became a monk in York, leaving the kingdom to his son, Oswulf. One would guess that young King Oswulf would be fine, what with his uncle being the archbishop and his father, the former beloved king, also nearby in York. His deck was pretty well stacked. But one would be wrong. Within a year, on July 24, 759, we're told that King Oswulf of Northumbria was murdered by members of his own household, probably his advisors and bodyguards. About two weeks later, Ethelwald Maul, who was from an unknown lineage, was crowned King of Northumbria, and that has led some scholars to suspect that he might have had a hand in the regicide. This notion is reinforced by the fact that there are indications that the rebellion and insurgency continued within Ethelwald Maul's new kingdom for quite a while. So things were not stable. Conversely, down in the south, Kent was continuing to do quite well without much to note other than the fact that they were, you know, pretty wealthy. Wessex and East Anglia were also going strong, asserting their independence and growing their power bases. Really, the only outlier was Northumbria, which was looking pretty good for a little bit, but in the end, they did what they were best at. They devolved into infighting. Though, they weren't alone. Things were no better for King Offa of Mercia. In 760, the Welsh Chronicle states that the English fought the Britons at Hereford. But who were the English? Well, it's thought that the English mentioned in the Chronicle were almost certainly the Mercians under Offa, considering that Hereford was on the border of Mercian and Welsh territories. But why were they fighting? Well, as you know, the timelines for this period aren't perfect. But scholars have suggested that King Eliseg of Poes was probably operating at around this point in history. Powys was the Welsh kingdom that bordered most with Mercia. And King Elisig seems like he was a pretty big deal. We have a large monument commemorating his reign, erected by his great-grandson, and on that monument, it's mentioned that Elisig annexed Powys from the Angles. It's entirely possible that those Angles were the Mercians, and the battle in 760 is what the monument is referring to. After all, Mercia was weakened by civil war and then continuing instability, so it would have been a great time to mount an attack. It worked for King Chinewulf of Wessex, so Elisig of Powys might have thought, why not me? Conversely, it's also possible that Elisig had already taken some of the lands during the Mercian civil war and was stretching into Hereford, and that this entry is recording the Mercian response and the fight to retake Hereford. 
regardless of whether or not King Eliseg was trying to carve Mercia like a Sunday roast at this point in history. Offa still needed to bring the Middle Angles, Maganseta, and other minor subkings back under the Mercian umbrella. After all, it looks like he lost most of them during the Civil War. And that's before he could even focus on the bigger ones, like Lindsay, Kent, and East Anglia. Things were looking a little bit rough in those early days of Offa's reign. To his comfort, though, King Aethelwald Maul of Northumbria was not having any better of a time. It looks like things were quite rowdy in Northumbria, and we're told that in August of 671, Oswin, brother of the slain King Oswulf of Northumbria, had gathered an army and launched an attack against King Aethelwald Maul. However, he bit off more than he could chew, and in that battle, Oswin was killed. The following year, we're told that Aethelwald Maul married Aethelthrith, who was almost certainly a noble daughter of... someone. But we can't be sure of who she was or what her lineage was, though it does seem apparent that King Aethelwald was looking to secure his position politically, probably in the hopes of stopping future rebellions like Oswin's. So yeah, it's a bit messy up there. Farther to the south on that same year, in Kent, something pretty significant happened. King Aethelbert II of Kent, son of Witchred, died. The reason that's such a big deal is that Kent was pretty stable under his rule. And as a result, Kent was one of Mercia's rivals for supremacy in the south. But with King Aethelbert II's death, cracks began to form in that southern bulwark. But here's where this show takes on the tone of a mystery. Honestly, it's been that way for a while now, as we try and piece together what happened from scattered and contradictory evidence, and we try and weigh whether or not we trust this or that source. And it's a bit difficult, because from our vantage point, who knows what exactly happened? As you might remember, Kent typically had two kings, and true to form, Ethelbert II wasn't the only king. His brother, Aedbert I, was the other king. It seems that after he died in about 748, the throne went either to Aedbert's son, Erdwulf, or it went to Aethelbert II's son, Aedbert II. But who it really went to depends on which source you trust. Based upon available charters and the fact that Erdwulf doesn't really fit into the other lists, I think it was King Aedbert II who succeeded. So that's the direction we're going to go. These same land charters suggest that King Aedbert II was immediately in threat. And on the same year as his father's death, Aedbert II appeared on a land grant, where King Sigurd of Kent was giving away some lands at Rochester. Wait, King Sigurd of Kent? Who's King Sigurd? It's hard to say for sure, we aren't given a lineage, but Sigurd had a rather East Saxon name, so some scholars have suggested that Essex was moving in and taking over which could explain why King Aedbert II was acting like a lesser Kentish king in the Charter, even though he had been on the throne longer than Sigurd. And if the East Saxon dynasty was moving into Kent through Sigurd, he might have been trying to reinforce his claim to the throne through marriage to King Aethelbert II's daughter, since she is recorded as marrying an unnamed Kentish king. Though, if that marriage did occur, it was probably pretty unhappy because it looks like the new King Sigurd might have also been eliminating rivals, which meant eliminating the old Kentish dynasty. Because in the 762 charter, King Aedbert II vanishes from the record. And spoiler alert, 
the old Kent dynasty largely disappears with him. So King Sigurd, from an unknown family, was now ruling half of Kent, with the other half apparently being ruled by a new king, Eanmund, son of... I don't know. King Eanmund, son of I don't know? Yeah. As of 762, Kent had not one but two kings who came from an unknown lineage, and the dynasty that went back to Hengist was pretty much gone. The stable kingdom of Kent was starting to get pretty rowdy. Two years later, in 764, King Sigurd and Edmund disappeared. And now Kent was being ruled by King Habert, son of somebody. Quite the mess, right? But this was excellent news for King Offa. In the seven years since Offa took the throne of Mercia, he'd been busy. And at last he was secure enough in Mercia to start involving himself in foreign politics. We aren't given details of King Habert's accession to the throne. But it is interesting that in 764 he appears in Canterbury as a new king of Kent and is in the company of King Offa as well as his Mercian nobles. So basically, Offa and his warband were hanging out in the Kentish capital. Not only that, but at that same meeting, King Offa granted land at Rochester. So he was granting Kentish land. And amusingly, it looks like he was granting the same bit of land that was recently granted by both Sigurd and Eanmund. It was a popular area, apparently. But the really important thing to note is that it was King Offa of Mercia who was granting the Kentish lands, not King Habert of Kent. So what happened there? The details aren't clear, but it certainly looks like Sigurd and Eanmund might have been overthrown by the new King Habert of Kent. And given the Mercian presence, he might have owed his throne to Mercian intervention, which would explain why Offa felt secure enough to immediately begin granting Kentish lands, as if they were his. Perhaps as far as he was concerned, they were, and Kent was actually a province or a sub-kingdom of Mercia. But this is Kent, so there are usually two kings. And as of at least 765, King Egbert II, son of someone, was ruling over the other half of Kent. I should note, by the way, that we have absolutely no indication that Habert and Egbert II were part of the Kentish royal dynasty. And as far as we know, that line completely ended with King Aedbert and his son, Eardwolf. Though, we really shouldn't blame Offa for that. It's entirely possible that Sigurd and others had finished the job long before Mercia got involved. Now, just because there's another king of Kent doesn't mean that there's sudden Kentish independence. Much like King Habert, it looks like his new co-ruler, King Egbert II, was acting as a sub-king of Offa's. For example, we have a land grant by Egbert II that was witnessed by Habert and confirmed by Offa. Yep, the King of Mercia was giving Kentish lands away, and also confirming land grants made by the kings of Kent. So his overlordship must have been generally recognized by the two kings of Kent by this point. Looking at the charters, it seems that Kent was the first major kingdom to fall under the influence of King Offa. And indications are that Mercia was probably trying to have a direct hand in Kentish politics. However, there were also coins being minted in King Egbert II's name until about 779, so it doesn't look like Mercia had complete dominance. But to assume that Kent had a free hand simply because it was minted coins would be folly. Mercia still had their hands on the steering wheel, 
For example, at one point, King Egbert II granted some Kentish lands in a charter. No big deal, right? Well, it kind of was, because Offa revoked it, stating, quote, It was not right for a man to grant away land which his lord had given him without his lord's assent, end quote. Silly Kentish king trying to grant his own lands without Offa's permission. It looks like what was going on was overlordship rather than outright annexation, similar to what office predecessors like Penda had been working to establish. Life in Kent was beginning to get interesting. Something else happened in that year that, while not immediately apparent, would turn out to be hugely important for Kentish politics. Archbishop Bregowina of Canterbury had died, and a council had to be convened to select his successor. At that council were the major figures of the English church, as well as members of the nobility. And of course, King Offa of Mercia was there. On the 2nd of February, 765, they selected a man from a prominent Kentish family. Naturally. His name was Janbert. He had begun his ecclesiastical life as a monk, and at the time of the council, was serving as the abbot of St. Augustine's Abbey. It appears that he was well-experienced and had roots in Canterbury, so he was an obvious choice. But perhaps it was his dynastic background that made him most attractive as archbishop. Jambert was kin to Aidhun, a Kentish reeve. A reeve was basically a lower official who dealt with things like managing the lord's estate and keeping the peasants in line, that sort of thing. And fun fact, not long from now we'll have shire reeves popping up. The slang term for them was sheriff. So, in addition to being a reeve, we're also told that Aidhun was apparently on good terms with the new King Egbert II of Kent. So basically, Janbert's family was tied to the establishment. That would have likely pleased the local Kentish aristocracy, and given Egbert II's cooperation with King Offa of Mercia, it also would have likely satisfied their Mercian overlords. So now, in Canterbury, we have a new Archbishop Jambert. You might want to remember that name. Meanwhile, things in Northumbria were still being Northumbrian. It seems that Alcred, a nobleman, was getting annoyed at the rule of this upstart King Aethelwald Maul. Who did this guy think he was? He wasn't even related to Ida, and yet he was ruling Northumbria? And it really looked like he might have been involved in the murder of Oswulf, son of the good King Aidbert of Northumbria, this was not looking good. It was time for a change, and Alcred knew exactly who should be sitting on the throne. Him. After all, he was on the line of Ida. Or, at least he said he was. He claimed descent through Adric, son of Ida. Do you remember Adric, son of Ida? Yeah, me neither. Sure, it does seem like Ida's sons were legion, but it is also really friggin' convenient to just claim descent through a previously unknown son of Ida. It sounds a bit fishy to me, and perhaps Alcred knew this. So, he bolstered his claim through marriage. He married the sister of the murdered King Oswulf, who, naturally, was also the daughter of the beloved former King Aidbert. Not a bad move. With his claim sufficiently established... All he needed now were some supporters. Thankfully, there were no less than five families vying for the throne, and the line of King Aethelwald Maul of Northumbria were pretty much brand new. And if one thing has been true throughout history, 
is that old money hates new money. But even if Ethelwald's family wasn't new and wasn't annoying the old dynasty, the fact remains that this was Northumbria in the 8th century. So there always would be a wellspring of nobles who were annoyed with the current king for one reason or another. That's just how things were. And it didn't take long for Alcred to find people who agreed with his perspective. On the 30th of October, 765, Alcred and his fellow irritated noblemen held a Watanagamot, basically a council of wise men. And there, they deposed King Aethelwald Maul. This was a shockingly civilized move for Northumbria. You would expect something that involves a knife fight, maybe at dusk. But no. Instead, they had what amounts to a senatorial meeting, and unlike the Romans, at the end of it, they didn't start stabbing. Instead, they just told Aethelwald he was out. Oh, Northumbria, is it possible that you're growing up? I mean, not really growing up, because gathering a bunch of people together to say, no, seriously, dude, everybody hates you, isn't exactly the most mature thing to do, but at least it's better than the alternative. And sometimes... You just have to suck it up and vote that disruptive jerk off the island. Though they also didn't want to run the risk of King Aethelwald Maul coming back and reclaiming the throne. So according to the Irish Annals, King Aethelwald Maul was forcibly tonsured and became Brother Aethelwald. This wasn't the first time that something like this happened in the English kingdoms. And it's one of the interesting parts of this period in history. You could be forced into religious life. Your vows did not need to be made freely whatsoever, and they would still be binding. Not only that, but by doing that, the assumption was that you would now be ineligible for kingship. And these kingdoms kept on forcing people into monkhood, even though there were multiple kings that made a comeback from both voluntary and forced monastic life. So it isn't like it worked all that well, but... Whatever, now Northumbria was being ruled by King Alcred, who may or may not have been on the line of Ida. So that's what's going on up there. The following year, in the south, Janebert got his pallium. And right now, everyone who didn't go to Catholic school, and many of you who did but slept through the religion classes, are asking, what's a pallium? It's not a drug, though it sounds like it should be. A pallium was a broad strip of cloth that marked investiture. So basically, it was a magic scarf that said, this guy, yeah, he's an archbishop. It was official now. Jambert was an archbishop. And I wonder if he began to show signs that he wasn't going to be anyone's pet. I mean, Wilfred was a bit of a punchy bishop, and the church was growing in power in Britain. So I wonder how that's going to play out under Jambert's tenure. Meanwhile, King Offa was likely continuing to expand his influence over the various smaller kingdoms near him. If the Magonseta, Middle Angles, and others weren't brought under his influence already, they probably would be during this period. And across the Channel, in Francia, King Pepin the Short died in 768, and the crown passed to two brothers who split the kingdom in half. One half was ruled by Carloman, and the other half was ruled by a man who had become known as Charles the Great, or Charlemagne. Though at this point, he was probably just Chuck. And we'll see how that shakes out next week. Mm-hmm. 
All right. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, everywhere. And you can find links to all of that, as well as the cool interactive map and the Heptarchy family tree at the British History Podcast.com. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>